still used to thinking that you do mitzvahs, you're rewarded, you deserve reward, you do averas, you deserve punishment, and that's why you're punished. But there's another aspect to reward and punishment that's not the result of you being a deserving person that deserves reward or deserves punishment, but rather it's a consequence. The sin of driving while you're drunk, which although you are sinning by violating the laws of Lishpatim to diligently guard your soul, it's a sin, you're supposed to guard your soul, but it's not that when you get into the accident and a person is mangled or dies, it's not because of the sin of that particular mitzvah, but it's the consequence of that of that mitzvah. And therefore the consequence could be sometimes much more severe than what you would normally think to be deserving. Likewise, in terms of mitzvahs, it's not necessarily that people reap the fruits because they're so great, but certain mitzvahs just have consequences. It's the law of unintended consequences. We gave the example, really, of... Um, of the generation of Achov and the generation of Dovid Amelech. The generation of Dovid Amelech was very righteous, but because of the slander and because of the informing and the um, malshinus that was going on, people suffered and there were casualties. The generation of Achov that showed unity reaped the benefits and the rewards of Shalom. So Shalom is so, so it's a lesson to us as to how to appreciate Shalom. Although not always do you go with Shalom, you have to realize that Shalom has its own virtue. In fact, we once explained, based on this, the, the Parsha in Bilam, rather, I'm sorry, the Parsha in Pinchas, according to the Nitziv, this is how he explains the rewards for Pinchas. Pinchas does a zealous act. He does the zealous act and he kills uh, Zimri and he kills Cosby and he thereby saves the Jewish people. And what does Hashem say as a reward for Pinchas? Hashem says that the reward for Pinchas is Hinini no sein lo as brisi shalom. Behold, I'm giving him my covenant of peace, of shalom. According to the Nitziv, it was a necessary reward in order to in order to rebalance Pinchas. Because after doing a zealous act, although he had to do it, but a consequence and a result of that is that you become a a person who always has rage within you and who's always intolerant. That's not so good. So therefore, to restore the balance, Hashem gives him the reward of Shalom to, to replace that. With Irani Nachas and Pashas there's actually a mitzvah, Hakai Takas, called Yoshveir Lefichor, you got to utterly destroy them. And then it ends off by saying, if you do that, that it says, V'nosan l'cho rachamim v'richamcho. Hashem will give you mercy and He'll be merciful over you. And He'll multiply you like He promised to your forefathers. What's the double expression? He'll give you mercy, He'll have mercy over you. So the Tziv Adam Forshim say the same point. Namely that, yes, you did a good act and therefore you deserve mercy for doing the act, but more than that, Hashem has to give you the quality of mercy. Because after doing such an act, a warlike act, you become a warrior, the nature of warriors is that they develop certain personalities. Based on your actions, you develop personalities. We all know that the basis of the Sefer HaChinuch, Sefer HaChinuch says, to understand the concept of mitzvahs in general, he understands and he says that the purpose of mitzvahs are because people are influenced by their actions, by their deeds. The kinds of deeds that you do, that's the kind of person that you become. Therefore, the Torah gives us so many mitzvahs 
in order to develop certain characteristics and character traits. Ho'odom nifal kefi pu'ulosov is the famous way that the Chinuch always refers to it. Ho'odom nifal kefi pu'ulosov based on your actions, that's the kind of person that you become. Therefore, he says, a good person who has good characteristics, but if you accustom him and you bring him into a bad environment where he does bad things, even not by his nature, eventually develops a bad nature and vice versa, a person who's, who has all bad character traits and, and qualities, if he starts accustoming himself to do good things, to deliver packages to people, to give tzedakah, to be kind, you start doing those things, you automatically become a kind person. That's the essence of the Torah. People internally develop based on their external actions. You'll have occasionally mitzvahs of extermination. Now they're mitzvahs, but the fact is that they have a negative uh, side effect. And that negative side effect is that if you accustom yourself to doing wars of mitzvah, you become a warrior, you become a warlike person. In fact, we know David Melach was refused by Hashem to be the one to build the base of Mikdash. And according to what most of Hashem, this is the understanding, Kidomim Harbe Shafachto says the Pasik. You spilled a lot of blood. And the Rambam in, in the seventh parak of Shemona Prokim says that Dovra Melach had a quality about him of, of warlike nature, a kind of a, it's hard to say, a mean streak. But the Rambam says that. He had that kind of a midah of cruelty, which he says he only used against enemies. To Jews he was merciful. And we know that Dovra Melach, who only used his, his, this quality against the enemies, was merciful to Jews, where Shoal HaMelech, who by nature was merciful, by showing mercy where he wasn't supposed to, ultimately became cruel where he wasn't supposed to. Right? That's why Shoal HaMelech, he, he was merciful to Amalek, which he shouldn't have, he became cruel to, the, to Jews. He wiped out Novir Aquam. So the fact is that, that you, you do have to use these all of your Midos. That's why they're called Midos. Midos means measures, because the actual character trait itself has to sometimes be employed in opposite directions and therefore one can't say on an absolute way something is good or something is bad it's always a mida it depends how you use it the measure that you use it and so we refer to qualities and character traits as midos depends how you use it a mida the measure that you use it with David Melech always used it correctly but nevertheless Hashem says that you can't build a base of Mikdash base of Mikdash is a place of peace and serenity and harmony who did build the base of Mikdash? your son Shlomo as his name implies Shalom his was a, an era of peace. David Melch was an era of war, necessary war, and David Melch is considered a tzaddik. Nevertheless, as a consequence, as an unintended byproduct, side effect, he couldn't build the base of Mikdash. Domin Harbe Shafachl says the Novi, therefore you can't build the base of Mikdash, although he was, again, we're not, here, we're not criticizing David Melch, we're just saying this is the law of unintended consequences. So therefore we see this, this idea expressed in many places in the Torah. Achov wasn't a tzaddik and his generation weren't tzaddikim, they were idol worshippers but they took the virtue of shalom and that's really the lesson from this that rachamim and shalom are in a sense almost one could say absolute values and they'll always have beneficial byproducts in fact let's take the greatest example of all rebelliousness against God two generations the generation of the flood and the generation of, of the tower of, of, of Bovel. The generation of the flood because there was strife and fighting and, and violence amongst themselves. 
Hashem punished them by destroying them, obliterating them, literally to liquidate. Drown. It was a generation that was liquidated. Where the generation of Haflo, the Dora Floga, which was a rebelliousness against Hashem, but because there was unity and harmony amongst them, they weren't destroyed. Midah connected Midah, their punishment was disunity. Because they united against God, so Hashem punished them by disuniting them. But the fact remains that they weren't destroyed. So this is, what, what we're seeing is a positive byproduct benefit of Shalom that's independent of anything else. And there is a negative byproduct of, of fighting and war, warlike behavior, even if it's done for the right cases, that's independent of anything else. And so we talked about Kanois in Eretz Yisrael. The fact is, yes, you have to protest and you go to protest things, but you know, there is a byproduct. If not with the first generation, certainly with the second generation. I know a, a certain relative of mine, the way he punishes his kids during the week is that he's not going to let them go to the Bar Ilan demonstrations on Shabbos if they don't behave. You can't go to, and, 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 and it becomes a highlight for the kids to go to these demonstrations. Is that good? Obviously, you know, you understand. But this is, the kids start looking forward to it. So there's no question that Shalom has a positive benefit, whereas uh, discord and, and fighting and bickering has a negative one. That says the base, that says the initiative was what happened in the second base of Mikdash. The second base of Mikdash was destroyed, even though there were factions amongst themselves which you necessarily had to split from. You know, in in uh, when Rabshamshner for Hirsch, who, who we always view as being the um, foreigner of what they refer to sometimes as neo orthodoxy, or um, sometimes the modern orthodoxy. It's a loaded word, of course. Term their Heretz. He's the one that had to come up with the idea of splitting from the main community in, in Frankfurt. And there were other Gedolim that were opposed to that, even though it was controlled by the Reform, because the idea of splitting was a Chiddush. The idea of splitting into your own faction, he felt was necessary and he was vindicated, and everybody, and everybody concurs with that. But there are, there are negative byproducts of splitting. In the second base of English, it was the same thing. There were Tzedukim, there were Sadducees. And there were Asiyim, Essenes, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were made by also one of these kind of factions. And there were Christianity, there were a lot of sects that were going on. And the Pharisees, the very name Pharisee comes from the word Prussian, which means to separate. Separation carries negative byproducts. And therefore this separation, although it was necessary, ultimately led, according to the Nitziv, this is the Nitziv's understanding of it, that the Sinas Chilon that we're talking about was a kind of a byproduct of all of this factionalism and sectarianism that was going on, which was necessary. Therefore, it's important to learn this lesson that even when you're doing something which is necessary, such as destroying a Niran Dachas, but you still need that extra measure of Nasan Lucharachamim to reestablish the equilibrium which is being lost, which is being put out of balance. And the same thing with, with all other kinds of, of areas. Avraham Melech, as we said, couldn't couldn't do any kind of uh, couldn't build the base of Mikdash because there wasn't that balance there. So it's the nature of things that a hodam nifl also based on your actions. That's the kind of person that you develop into, and therefore we have to always bear that in mind. So shalom becomes an almost a kind of an independent value, which we sometimes have to suppress, and we sometimes have to negate and go against. But it's still an absolute value of goodness. And fighting is always bad, although it's a necessary evil at times as well. So what then is 
this Beit Ogum L'Chaver that we're dealing with here. Now we're going to see a number of, of important lessons from Reb Chaim Shmulevitz that I called from different Reb Chaim Shmulevitz's in his Sichos Musr that deal with certain aspects of the Beit Ogum L'Chaver. And I want to bring it down to husbands and wives and spouses and all of these things. And there's a, one Chiddush that maybe I'll save till the end, which which all week long has been bothering me ever since someone brought it up to light, and I'm almost afraid to say it, but last night I decided I'll do it, because I found some sources of vindicating it, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Reb Chaim talks about, we know that Shevet Levi, the tribe of Levi, was very special. They didn't sin with the eagle, therefore they merited to be the ones that worked in the Mishkan and were the Ovde Hashem, the, the intermediaries, if you will. The Kohanim came from them, they became the, the priests, high priesthood came from them, right? Kohen Godel, Kohanim, Levi. They worked in the Beis Amikdash, in the Mishkan, and they were sort of like Chayel Hashem, as the Torah refers to them. The army of the Lord, when Moshe Rabbeinu praises them at the, uh, in, par, in, in Zos HaBrocha, he refers to them your righteous, pious one, you were tested in, in Meimariva, you were tested in other places by the eagle. You become the teachers, you do the Ketaris. Hashem should bless his army. They're considered the army of Hashem. For that reason, they don't have an inheritance in the land. Hashem says, I am your portion, your lot. But we find that Shevet Levi was not only special as a result of all these things that they did, but quite possibly they did all the things that they did because they were special. Why were they special? We find even in Egypt, the tribe of Levi was unique. They were not part of the Shibud. They were not part of the general subjugation that the rest of the Jews suffered under. As a result, they were able to develop leaders such as Moshe, Aaron, Amram. Chazal tells because Levi outlived the other brothers, he was able to set up his kids more carefully that they shouldn't get so assimilated into, Egypt, into Egyptian society and therefore suffer the negative aspects which ultimately led to the subjugation. In other words, the Jews were trying to show what great loyal patriots they were in Egypt and then they became the slaves. Levi understood and had the foresight to see where it's leading and therefore he set up his children differently. Again, another example of the law of unintended consequences. That it was merely because Levi outlived everybody else that he was able to set up his children in such a way. But where does it all come from? So comes Rukhain Shmulevitz and he says a very powerful thing. He says, we find in the very birth of Levi, Chazal already tell us something special about it. We find that when Levi is born, it says, Vatar od, Vatelud bein, Vatomer, Ato hapam yulavi ishe like yulad yuloshlosh abonim alkein koroshmo levi. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which Chazal tell us was already a name given to him by the angels that came with Levi. Levi comes from the word Leviah. To Leviah, of course, is not a funeral. Leviah means an escort. In other words, when you go on the Leviah, you escort the that person from Levi, the heart? No, no, it's spelled with the vav. Levi is a different word. Levi, it means to escort. So Levi was actually escorted by angels. Who, who was, which 
Leah was the mother. But in in the birth of Levi, she says the following, why am I calling him Levi? Because now that I have three sons, my husband, my husband will escort me. My husband will come together finally with me. Ruvain was born, and she called it Ruvain, is Hashem sees how I am not loved by my husband. Shimon, likewise, Hashem hears that I'm not loved by my husband, and therefore he gave me these children. But there was still a little bit of a residue of, of what she perceived at least as a kind of a resentment from Yaakov over the fact that he was fooled into marrying her. By the birth of Levi, she says, Oh, hapam, ato hapam, now finally, ye love ishi my husband will come together with me. Now finally, there will no longer be any residual hatred or resentment or dislike or lack of love from my husband with the third child. The first two children, she still felt, Hashem is seeing my affliction. She's seeing my, he's seeing my suffering. He's seeing that my husband doesn't love me the way he should. Now, finally, I'm going to call him Levi because with this child, we're finally coming together as husband and wife should. Hapam, ye love the Ishael, I were coming together. Therefore, he's being called Levi to represent the idea of the coming together of husband and wife. And Levi was actually escorted. Let's see now the words of Rabbi Shemulevitz. He says, Omnam loinisker because of hatam lektusha shevet Levi. We know that he didn't sin by the eagle. We see that consistently throughout Jewish history, Shevet Levi was was special. They were unique. They were different than the rest. They were they were a cut above. says possibly. Where does it all begin? No, it's that it comes about because on the day of Levi's birth, the Yom Hustoy shall shave it, and the day that he became a tribe, Nigram, he caused and he brought about Kiruvalovavos, a bringing together of the hearts, He brought about a kind of a reconciliation between his father and mother. Shavit was Levi, by his very birth, brought about reconciliation with his father and mother. And therefore this name, the name of Levi, which actually implies the coming together, the coming together of two separate things, became sanctified and became established forever for future generations in the Jewish people. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable chiddush of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. But Levi with his birth, like his name implies, brought together a reconciliation of father and mother and therefore it became established for all time as being that. Ultimately, what is the Mishkan? And like the Beis HaMikdash. Davra Melech, as we said earlier, wasn't allowed to build the Beis HaMikdash because Beis HaMikdash, because Davra Melech was, was warlike. And that's blood, the shedding of blood. And yes, you did it all as mitzvahs, but that's not what the Beis HaMikdash is. The Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash represent reconciliation. It represents harmony and shalom and coming together. You need someone like Shlomo, who by the way, overdid it. I mean, he brought around peace and harmony amongst not only himself, but amongst all the surrounding nations by marrying all their daughters. I mean, the reason why he married so many women was because they were all princesses. And his idea, his goal was that by marrying all of these women, 
he will thereby bring peace forever to the Jewish people because, I mean, this is something which was very common in the Middle Ages, that, you know, the king of England would marry the princess from Spain, and, you know, anybody that knows... Right. Anybody that knows European history knows this was very, very common, that people would marry the princesses and the of other empires and of other nations, even though they didn't even speak the same language, for the purpose of forging alliances and bringing us a sense of, of peace and uniting of the empires. That's really what Shlomo Melz did. He, by marrying Paro's daughter and the other ones, he was forging alliances with all of the surrounding nations that they were no longer in order of peace. So, I mean, marrying is, of course, the greatest unity, it's the greatest coming together. Shlomo, peace, bringing together. Obviously, it was overdone. But the Beis Amigdash represents coming together. Shevet Levi, who worked in the Beis Amigdash and who was the intermediary doing the priesthood as well as everything else, the Avod in the Beis Amigdash, as well as the Mishkan, had to come about from peace and harmony. Levi's very birth was the essence of the coming together of husband and wife. Then he says now another fascinating shot and something else which we've also once commented about. Richard will remember this one. The birth of Yosef. Why was Yosef called Yosef? Rachel, of course, who was the one that was beloved by Yaakov, was literally, literally dying to have a child. She says, if you don't give me children, I'm going to die. Rachel was, was very jealous of, um, of having children. And she goes to Yaakov and she says, Give me children. I don't have children, I'm, I'm dead. And Yaakov answered, it's not, not God. it's not my fault that you didn't... Again, we have to understand that Parsha, since we're not learning by Yetzeh right now, we're not going to go into that, what exactly Rachel's kind of was to Yaakov. I mean, how's Yaakov going to be held responsible? So finally, on and on, she's trying and she's trying, and she gives her maidservant over, and then Leah does the same thing. She tries to purchase from Leah certain fertility pills. The, the, the Daduim were... Dudoim were kind of a fertility pill. Then finally it says, Hashem remembers Rachel. He listens to her prayers, beseechments. He opens her womb. And she gives birth to a son. And she says, Hashem finally brought in, gathered together my, my shame. And she was called Yosef. She calls him Yosef to represent the end of my shame. Chazal say on it, says Rashi, very fascinating Chazal. He says, what does it mean, Cherposi? So, he brings down the following Medrash, strange Medrash, calls Manshein Isha Ben, as long as a woman is barren and doesn't have a son, ain't lo me little as when she makes a mistake, a goof, she has nothing to blame it on. When she has a son, she could blame it on the kid. Husband comes home. Again, you know, nowadays you don't have husbands doing this kind of stuff, but in those days you certainly did. Husband comes home. Who broke the expensive vase? Your son did it. Who ate the figs? Who ate the cake? Your son did it. Now she has what to blame it on. Her her mistakes that she does. She burned the thing up. I had to die for the kid. I was the she has an excuse. Because when a, when, when a woman has a baby, she has excuses. As long as there's no baby in the house, she has no excuses. What's she going to say? What's she going to blame it on? We talked about this. This is why she's calling the child Yosef based on 
the ability to use excuses. So he once said one shot on this. That really, in effect, what she's saying, she's, she's going through all... She's able to see not only the obvious benefits of having a child, but even the less, the more subtle, the less obvious ones. In other words, to understand the perfection of the appreciation of what it means to have a child. She's saying, even this. In other words, it's not, this is the value of having a child, but it's 99%, it's 100% value. It's even this. She went to the, by saying this, she's also implying everything else up to and including this. But Rebchanan Shmulevitz has, has a more pelotic shot on this. Second paragraph. The Medrash says, calls man ben, ben. She could say, Third paragraph. Hadvar maflim, it's a pella, he says. This is the way she is thinking regarding her relationship to Yaakov. I mean, Reb Chaim is highlighting another question. Rachel was the one that Yaakov spent 14 years of his life working for. He felt cheated when he couldn't have Rachel and he got Leah instead. Leah is the one that felt that, hey, my husband doesn't love me enough. He only loves Rachel the most. Yaakov was Meister Nefesh. He literally sacrificed his life for what? To just to get Rachel. So Yaakov, who does all of this just for her, this is what she's thinking. Oh, now finally, I'll have who to blame that he won't have any, he won't yell at me. I mean, Yaakov? Yaakov and Rachel. Who could think of a greater love story than Yaakov and Rachel? Hayakpadol Yaakov al-Shvir is Will Yaakov be angry at Rachel for breaking something? I mean, is he one of these husbands? Is he a truck driver? Is he a redneck from the south? That he comes home drunk and says, Who broke my favorite Ming vase? And he starts beating her then for doing that? I mean, is that, is that Yaakov? And Rachel's afraid, Oy vey. Every night he beats me. Now finally he'll stop beating me because I can blame it on Yosef. I mean, is this what she's worried about? Or he ate the extra figs? Who ate my figs? That's something we expect from some redneck down south who comes home drunk, full of tattoos, and then he beats his wife for it. But Yaakov and Rachel, 14 years, this is what she was concerned about, that she even had such a concern? He ate a fig, a tiny thing like this, and a tiny infraction. And this is what she's thinking about? By the very birth of her first child that she's been yearning for, for years. For years she's yearning to have a child. And you're talking about approximately what? About seven years, I guess. No, more than that. Must be about 10 years, 10, 11 years. After 10 years she's gone, she's dying to have a child. She finally has a child. And, and we know that the Imos, that the matriarchs, understood the concept of what it means to have children because this is going to be the foundation of the Jewish people, the Shvatim. They knew that that their sons are becoming the founders of the Jewish people, the Shvatim. And she was dying to have a child, to have a shevet. And she says, if I don't have a child, I'm like dead. Finally, she has a child that she yearned for. And she's going to call him by the fact that now Yaakov's going to be less angry. He's going to be, I mean, he wasn't beating her. What, what exactly? This is what she's thinking about the day of the birth of the first child that she's been yearning for all these years. What's going on here? She was saying this on the first day of the birth of the child. 
she was an akor, she was barren for years. She was dramatized by saying, this day, in her eyes, was like resurrection, like coming alive. Because earlier she said, regarding herself, give me children, if not, I'm like dead. Because she understood, Chazal learned from this, Someone that has no children, in one sense, is considered like a dead person. You have no future, you have no eternity. If you have no children, then what's going to happen is, you're going to die, you're living a temporal life, you do not have any kind of a handle on eternity. There's no eternity to a person that has no children. And therefore, yes, you're alive now, but you're not much different than a terminally ill person. A terminally ill person will die in a few days, in a few months, in a few years. So you'll die in a few decades. But it's the same thing. You're terminally ill if you have no children. You're dead. And the moment you have a child, that's resurrection. You're going to live forever. So by having a child, Chazal said that someone that doesn't have a child, finally on the great day when you have a child and she's coming back to life, what does Rachel see in this? I'm alive. She should have called him Chaim. She should have called him. She should have called him Chaim. I have life now. What does, uh, what does Rachel see? She sees this little minor detail. And he says, now I have someone to place the blame on and my husband won't be so angry at me. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, This seems trivial in our eyes. It was a great thing in the eyes of our patriarchs and matriarchs. What seems small and, and inconsequential and insignificant and trivial in our eyes, to them was a great thing. They understood what it means, peace and harmony between husband and wife. They understood it in the, in, in the greatest possible measure. And once she saw that Yaakov wasn't going to come home in a drunken stupor and beat her for dropping a plate. But, you know what? If now we come together a little bit better, just like Leah saw with Levi, and, he, and Rachel now sees, you know what? Now, every time I have an excuse and those little nuisances that go through husband and wife relationships on a daily basis, where he'll now be more understanding of my minor mistakes, and he won't blame me at things because he'll attribute it to the fact that I have a child, you know. Everybody's always much more sensitive and much more tolerant of women making mistakes or being like, oh, they have children, right? You're late, why? Put the kids in. You're always, you're much more tolerant and understanding of women with little children. That little extra measure of understanding, rather than, oh, you're late again. Of course you're not going to beat them because of that, but oh, you're late again. Or what happened now? Oh, it's, 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 uh, you're always late. You're always, you know, every time you make a mistake, but now that you have a child, you're more understanding of it. Yaakov has it, having a child. Now is much more understanding of whatever minor infractions and mistakes Rachel will make on a daily basis. As a result, it smooths over these little tiny holes that, that occur on a daily life. To us, they're insignificant. To Rachel, that was very significant. The fact that on a daily basis, Yaakov is going to be more understanding and more and more tolerant of her mistakes and there will be less less opportunities for him to become slightly angered at her is a great thing. It's a great thing that I'm coming together with my husband on a daily 
basis and the little nuisances will no longer annoy him as much. To us, it's, it's insignificant. To the Ovos and the Imaos, these things were very significant. And that's part of the lesson that we're supposed to learn from this. That now that, that the, the obstacles were removed between Yaakov's anger and relationship to her, Af, Alav Shebebadei Loitiya Kepeidu Zu, Hamukeres Tonu Elo, Kepeidu Daku Shein Makirbo, Elo HaKodesh Boruch Bulvat. Obviously Yaakov didn't go around in a rage and start yelling and screaming at her. But nevertheless, minor annoyances also affect the person. It's a tiny dakus. It's a small thing. But then also, those little annoyances also bring about a kind of a separation between husband and wife. And therefore, with the birth of Yosef, there was an element of tremendous simcha, which is what? Not only by having a child, but that they achieved a level of serenity and harmony, of shalom bias, which came about with all of its glory. They had the full measure of Shalom Bayes and all of its glory with the removal of even the most minor of annoyances and nuisances. He says then, what brings about what brings about Ava and Shalom between one man and his fellow man or between husband and wife? And that is the proper respect and dignity that you have to give to the other person. He then continues, If you lack the sensitivity to human, to human dignity and respect, therefore it's not only that you lack perfection, as we find that the, that the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died between Pesach and Shavuos we're going to go more in detail to that particular story later but again we see the idea that 24,000 Talmudim died because they lacked respect is it a punishment? the Gemara actually says that they died as a result of plague according to many Jewish historians the actual death occurred during the the struggles of Bar Kochba against the against the Roman against the Romans and it's possible that they died in battle and one can then understand how all of this how all of this has its its you know, its meaning in other words if you if you show a kind of a disunity and a disharmony amongst yourself that when you go into battle not being united you're going to have casualties similar to the medish we quoted earlier in Parshas Chukas or Parshas uh, Medish Rabbah and Parshas Chukas right that in the days of David there were casualties in the days of Ahav there weren't so one could again see the idea of the consequence of lack of kavod as bringing about death. Again, the Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara is rather mysterious about the cause of death. It's called askar, which is what's called krup, a kind of a plague. Others connect that to the idea of that in battle, whatever it is, it, it, it's, it's very unclear. It's a very hazy part of history because a lot of the things that the Gemara writes regarding that era of persecution were couched in allegorical terms. So it's not clear when the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva died. I'm saying some historians, the Doris um, Rishonim and others, say that, that, that it's a result of, of the wars with Betar. And one could then see that there's a direct connection between lack of respect. It still doesn't mean that this was the punishment for the sin. This was the consequence. 
was led to other things. Let's just take a look at the last two paragraphs, and then we'll be able to turn the page. First place of Migdash was destroyed on account of the major sins. Why in the second place of Migdash where they didn't have those sins that they die? To teach us how sinas chinam, this hatred, baseless hatred amongst Jews, is equal to the three cardinal sins. Again, it has to be understood the same way. Does it mean that the sin of hatred is as severe as the sin of No, it means that the consequences of that sin can be just as devastating. The consequences of sinas chinam, in fact, the way the Nitziv explains it in his Hagdama Tiberations that we mentioned earlier, the way the Nitziv explains it is that it led to Shvichas Domin. Now, ultimately, there was civil war amongst the Jews. There was civil war and there was killing. But it was all based on this fractioning and factionalism of the Jews. Sinas Chinam leads to Shvichas Domin. This is the root cause. And therefore, Chazal are telling us that the destruction of the first base of English was an account of sin, punishment. The destruction of the second base of English was an account of sin as chinam. What that tells us is contrasted to. First base of English was punishment for sin. The second base of English was consequence of sin. That's the way one has to view it. It wasn't merely punishment for sin. At least that's the way Rebchayim Shemulevitin and Siv explain it. First base of English was destroyed on account of punishment. Second base of English was destroyed on account of consequence of sin. That's how devastating the consequences are. Not only that, but it was even worse. The second base of English is worse than the first. will prove it. Because the first sins, base of Migdash was finally was finally returned to them. They were able to do tshuva on it, but we still are suffering the consequences of the second base of Mikdash's destruction. The consequences of the first base of Mikdash's destruction were finally cleansed and were finally reversed. When they repented, the tshuva no longer is there. About Zar they were able to, they were able to regain the base of Mikdash. But the second base of Mikdash's destruction was much more long-lasting and long-lived. Why? Because the consequence of that goes on and has repercussions, reverberates for generations to come. In fact, I mean, the Asara Harugei Malchus that we, on Tishabov, that we had a keynote for the ten martyrs, the Roman governor said this is, this is as punishment for the sin of the sale of Yosef by his brothers. Now again, obviously the Roman governor that was doing this was a murderer, and his reason was he was a cruel murderer. But the Mekubalim say, Rebbeinu Machai, and others say, yes, there was a connection between the sin of Yosef's sale and the Asar Harugei Malchus. Why? We see the connection. Because the sin of the sale of Yosef by his brothers was the beginning of the separation of brothers. That was the beginning of Sin Aschinam. Where did it begin? Where did Sin Aschinam show itself? It showed itself by Cain and Hevel. But it also showed itself by the sale of Yosef by his brothers. And from that point on, there was a kind of a slight split 
in the Jewish people that although it was a very small crack which wasn't visible for hundreds of years but it became a much wider crack in the generation after Shlomo when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom actually did split and it also uh, constantly resurrected itself this this flaw with the Sinas Chinam with the factionalism and the fracturing of the Jewish people in the time of the second temple we know that at the at the last era the last starting from the circa zero you know in the common era you had for the next 50 or so 60 years a tremendous amount of, of factions that arose amongst the Jewish people in fact one of the things that, that we learn on Tisha B'Av is the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who had to be secreted out from the um, from Jerusalem why? because the Baryonim those were the zealous militants would have killed him in fact the Baryonim were responsible for starvation Kalba Savua, Rabbi Akiva's father-in-law as well as two other wealthy people had enough food stored in Jerusalem to keep the people for many many years you know that they should be able to uh, to survive and sustain themselves in a siege the Baryonim wanted to precipitate they were the militants they wanted to precipitate war they burned the storehouses they burned the food in order to bring upon an onset of starvation in order to force the Jews to fight the Romans which led of course to all the tragedies and consequences that we have because the Jews did it to themselves they burned down their own food their own storehouses and if you read the stories of the of the mass starvation that occurred in Jerusalem at the time of the Roman siege where mothers actually ate the flesh of their dead children and children scavenged in the street and they ate dead corpses and sometimes it even occurred that they ate the corpses of their own fathers again there was a lot of Medrashim about this we're not going to go into all the details it's part of Medrash Eicha and all of these things but what what brought about the starvation what brought about this degradation of where they lost all semblance of human dignity similar to what occurred in the concentration camps they burnt their own storehouses there were Bayonim, there were factions amongst them even Rabbi Yochum ben Zakkai, the sage of the generation couldn't walk out of Jerusalem uh, because he was afraid that they would they would kill him his own nephew was the leader Abu Sikra was the leader of this faction of militants that's, that's what was going on in Jewish life what brought that about? Sinas Chinam it doesn't mean that Sinas Chinam deserves the punishment of death of destruction, of exile, of devastation. Sinas Chinam leaves. The consequence of Sinas Chinam is death, destruction, devastation, and exile. That's the consequence of Sinas Chinam. It'll lead to factionalism, to this internal strife and civil war. Sinas Chinam leads to that. It's a byproduct. It's, it, 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 it's a, it's a tauloda. It, it, it gives birth to this. It's a consequence. And that consequence we still feel the repercussions of that today. Where did it begin? It began with the sale of Yosef by his brothers. Therefore, yes, there is a direct line between the sale of Yosef and his brothers and the ten martyrs that were martyred as a kind of an atonement for that. But the sin is still with us. It was a partial atonement. And this unity that led to the destruction of the base of Migdash also led to the, to the death of all those people in Beitar. So therefore we see that this, how terrible are the consequences of Sinas Chinam.
And to this day, the Beis Hamikdash isn't rebuilt as a as a consequence. In terms of your question as to how to determine when to do it and when not to do it, the actual act it's halacha ve'morikin. It's very difficult to advise someone else to do acts that are destructive. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that destructive acts don't have to be done, because they do have to be done. So therefore, but to factor into the equation as to when to do it is taking all of these things into consideration. So we're learning these lessons from Yaakov. Yeah, there are times that you show favoritism to one child over the other. But if the Torah wouldn't teach us the lesson that you're not supposed to show favoritism, you might not balance it properly. By learning the lesson from Yaakov, when you do show favoritism to one child or the other, you will learn the balance that sometimes has to be done in the other direction. These are all lessons that have to be put into the equation. And you are going to have to be the person to paskin as to how to apply them. The fact is, the more you learn, the more you know how to take all of these things and make the right judgment as to how to lead your life. But you have to learn more and more in order to factor into all these things, all into the equation, how to make the right judgments. And even then, we're still incomplete. That's why you have Gedolim, that's why you have to go to people that are Torah scholars and sages in order to ask advice. And they're also human. They can also make mistakes. The fact is, everybody is human. Everybody can make mistakes. As you pointed out, Yaakov also did. But the more you, but the results of Yaakov's life were much more positive than negative. The fact is that there's a Jewish people, and ultimately a Mashiach because of Yaakov. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, you, you could find a crucial flaw and say, oh, he made mistakes and he's human. What about the rest of us? The fact is, there's more good than, than bad, and you could say the same thing about us as well. Let's not, you know, be too critical. You know, you made a mistake, you showed favoritism to a child. Does that mean that everything that you've done in your life is wrong? Yaakov brought about this, this, this seemingly irreparable you know, it break. It seems like the consequences are far too much for the people. Okay, so you know what? Thousands of years. Be, so being neglect, so Jerry being neglectful and leaving a hot iron on the floor when there's a baby walking around, the consequences seem much worse than the actual sin that you did. I was neglectful, I forgot. That's the point of sin and consequence as opposed to sin and punishment. A person takes drugs and later on in life says, hey, why did I do it? What did I do to myself? I scrambled my brain. So it's too late now. So a lot of life is like that you make a small minor mistake you drove you, you drove when you drank a little too much and you killed the baby because you backed up over a baby on a tricycle the consequences seem much worse than the than the sin so that's that's life you know you don't have uh, you didn't have the right metal detectors in the airport and 230 people get blown up for such a small little sin so many lives are shattered yeah the consequences can sometimes be more devastating than punishment Sin and consequence could be much worse than sin and punishment. That's what we're learning from this. Continues Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, V'inyin sinas chinam hu heder shalom v'reiz v'ava ben odom l'chavera. Sinas chinam really is the essence of this disharmony. V'ugurua mikol gimel v'reiz ha'chamuros. And in a way, it leads to consequences that are more devastating than the three worst sins. Again, the other sins are worse in terms of sin, but this in terms of devastating consequences is worse. V'omru begitten. We learned this last time. The Gemara and Gittin and Zion. See how powerful are the effects of Busha. Hashem allowed and helped, even in a sense, to slander the Jews, to, to, to inform against them. The which led to the destruction ultimately. That's a council of Barakamsa. story took place in the year 66. Four years later, there's already no base in Migdash. Umikan, 
that even one person's embarrassment could lead to such devastating consequences. Why is that English? The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Chofam expounds on the verse in Eishas Chayel, which we say, Sheker Hachein, grace is vain, Hevel Hayofi, beauty is is false, it's nothing. I'm sorry, Sheker Hachein, grace is false, Hevel Hayofi, beauty is vain. A God-fearing woman, she should be praised. So the Gemara expounds on this. One of the interpretations is the following. This grace that's false at the generation of Moshe and Yoshua. Why? Because the generation of Moshe and Yoshua, although they learned a great deal of Torah, but they did it in a generation of miracles where they miraculously saw things. It's easy to learn Torah when you're living in that kind of a generation. It's, it's beautiful. There's a lot of chain to it. But it's a little bit false because who knows if it's really deep and internal. Hevel Hayofi, Zedor Shal The generation of Chizkia learned even more Torah. Because in that generation, it said that they gave tests to children aged 6, 7, and 8. From Don to Beersheba, from north to south of Israel, every single child passed with flying colors. They knew Kotshim and Taurus. They knew the most difficult areas of Shas. So that's a lot of Yofi. It's beautiful. But, okay, Chizki also lived in the generation of miracles. Hashem helped them. There was monarchy. There was sovereignty. Who knows if that's the real Torah? Yiras Hashem What is that? Zedor shall Rabbi Loi. That's the generation of Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Loi. What's that? Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi They said regarding Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi He lived in a de- generation of deprivation and impoverishment to such a degree that he taught Torah to six of his students who had to use one cloak to to cover themselves. In other words, they were so poor that they had to share one garment amongst the six of them, and they still learned Torah. Rabbi Yudabar just briefly lived in the generation of Shemad. That the generation of Betar and the subsequent persecutions, the Hadrianic persecutions, where the Jews were living in one of the most difficult eras in Jewish history. And they still learned Torah. That was the generation of the Ten Martyrs. That was the generation of where the Romans made Jerusalem Yudenrein, where they plowed over the Harabais and they forbade Jews to live there. They forbade the study of Torah. They burned Rabchim ben Trajan at the stake with the Torah scroll, they they killed Rabbi Akiva, they massacred Jews right and left. It was an era of unprecedented persecution. The horrors of that era are recorded in many places in Shas. It's referred to as the Dora Shmad, the generation of desolation. The Amoroim recount how they couldn't have possibly been able to have put up with that kind of persecution, how difficult the era was. Torah was almost extinct until the very next generation Rabbi Yudah Nasi, who lived in a generation where the opposite occurred, where Jews were respected and he had a good relationship with the Roman Emperor, and he became wealthy, and then there was a re- rebirth and a resurgence of Torah and Torah study, he felt it, he felt compelled to write down the Mishnah, to write down the Torah Shabal Peh, and he therefore compiled the Mishnah because of the fact that Torah was on the verge of extinction in the generation before. This was the generation of Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi that he was living in this kind of a severe environment.
They said regarding Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loi that he lived in such an impoverished generation that six of the disciples of Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loi would have to share one garment, one cloak, one cover to cover themselves and they would still nevertheless study Torah in spite of their utter destitution and their great poverty. This is what Chazal say that the generations of Moshe, Yoshua, and Chizkiah, the generation of Rabbi Hudabar Rabbi Loi, was able to teach six of his disciples in such great poverty, and they still sacrificed themselves to learn Torah with such mysterious nefesh. That's a generation of Isha Yirat Hashem That's something praiseworthy. Interesting, though, that Chazal pointed it out regarding Rabbi Hudabar Rabbi Loi and his disciples. What's so significant about Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi? If anything, we should be attributing the credit to the six of his students that did this. But also, why highlight six students covered themselves with one talus? I mean, th- this is just a sign of the times. Really, we should use a more general, a more, a more universal idea regarding this generation, that they were living in such an impoverished generation that that they still study Torah, but it's the entire generation of Talmudim that study Torah by Mysterious Nefesh. Why highlight this small facet, this small aspect of the destitution of the generation that six of his Talmudim would have to share one cloak, and why discuss it in the sense of Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loi and his Talmudim, and why speak about it as Omru Olav Al Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loi? We should be speaking about his disciples, not about him. Now before we answer that, Let's explain this idea of six students covering themselves up with one talus. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz in his Sichos Musa, this is from an excerpt from a different Sicha than the ones we've seen. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, he quotes Shekarachain, the Zedor Shalmoshev Yoshua, as Rashi says, Osku Betara Harbe, Hevelayofi, that's the generation of Chizkiah, as Rashi says, Osku Betara Yoser, Shebotku Midon Vadbeer Sheva. Every child even was an expert. That's the generation of Rabbi Yudah bar Rabbi Loi. As Rashi explains, meaning, that they learned in such a state of impoverishment and destitution and with such great suffering, with such great pressure, financial pressures, that they nevertheless learned because of their tremendous mesiras nefesh, the sacrifice involved in all of this, they they were considered above and beyond they had to have superseded the previous generations of Moshe and of Chizkiah. As it says in Torah the Be'eliyahu, he quotes, Better one measure that's with pain and suffering than a hundred measures without pain. In other words, greater reward and greater credit and greater significance is given to even a 1% accomplishment if it's done with pain and suffering and sacrifice than a hundred times as much if it's done without pain and suffering. Greater is the reward, greater is the credit, and greater is the significance of even a little bit, the tsar, than a hundred times as much without pain. That's Pashup Shat and the Gemara, and that's why they were given this this kind of uh, title, 
as Isha Yiras Hashem Hitzhal, where they superseded the generations that preceded them, even the generations of Moshe and of Chizkiah, with all of their greatness. However, explains Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, there's another message in what Chazal are telling us over here. Ki hateva ein talis achas maspekes Because how in the world is one talis, one garment, one cloak, one cover suffice for six people? It's impossible physically for one thing to last for six, to be able to, to be utilized by six people and to be sufficient for them. So how did it actually become sufficient? The reason why one garment cannot help six people, cannot cover six people, is because each one is concerned about himself. You're concerned that you should be covered. If you're focused on yourself, if you're self-centered, if you have a bed with six people laying in it, and there's only one cover, and each one is pulling it in different directions, then nobody gets covered, and nobody's able to sleep all night long. All night long, they're quibbling, they're fighting, they're bickering, they're pulling, they're tugging on the blanket, and nobody gets covered, because each person is constantly fighting to make sure that he himself is covered. So you have six people pulling it from six directions, nobody gets any satisfaction, nobody gets covered, nobody's able to sleep at night. All night long they're bickering, no one gets any sleep. And same thing with anything else. If you have six people fighting over one thing, nobody gets anything, there's no satisfaction to anybody. And then, it's actually true that in actuality, it is impossible for all six to be covered with one garment. One garment will not suffice for six people. The generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi, where you had six students that were successful in being miscast in Betalas Achos, that's what the Gemara tells us. The generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi, she should tell me the miscast in Betalas Achas. The Gemara is telling us something else. The Poshub Shad is telling us what Rashi is saying, that they were so poor that you needed uh, that, that one garment had to suffice for six people. That's Pashup Shad. One garment had to suffice for six people. But Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz tells us that the Gemara is implying something else as well. It says the generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi was learning Torah that they successfully covered themselves with one garment. One garment did indeed suffice for six. Not merely that one garment had to suffice for six, but rather that one garment indeed did suffice for six of them, and they were able to study Torah. What that means, though, is how could they successfully cover themselves when there's only one talus to go around for six people, one garment for six? Zayi tochen. How was it possible? Shekulam hayum that all six were covered and that it did suffice for six? If each person is focused on the needs of his fellow man, you want to share. You're not focused on yourself. You're worried about your chaver. You're worried about the other one. And you're worried about his needs and you cover him. Each one is sharing and offering the towels to the other one to cover the other one. And everybody gets covered. Because if each person thinks in terms of, I'm not cold now, you are, you need it now, here take it. And the other one says, no, I don't need it now, you take it. And the six people thinking like that, that each one is concerned for the other, all of them can actually get covered with one talus. One talus can indeed suffice to cover six people when the six are focused on each other rather than on themselves. If you think about the other person rather than about yourself, 
if you're not self-centered and think of yourself me first but rather the other person then you could actually use one talus for all six it'll indeed suffice because each one is worried about the other saying I don't need it now you use it and the truth is it could be shared under those conditions when a person thinks in terms of I don't really need it now you need it more and each one is thinking that the other person needs it more the truth is they'll be able to share it in the manner that all six will be able to successfully cover themselves with the towels that's when you're focused on the other but when it's me first and you're shoving and tugging and pulling if each one pulls for himself not even one gets it if each one thinks of himself me first nobody gets it if each person thinks of the other they all get it this is the lesson that we said from the parable of Ganeiden and Gehenna that Ganeiden and Gehenna is really the same it's the same banquet with the same food that everybody's tied down to and everyone lacks an elbow joint so Ganeiden and Gehenna are identical the only difference what makes Ganeiden Ganeiden and Gehenna Gehenna is that in Ganeiden each one thinks of the person across the table and even though you lack an elbow joint you nevertheless feed the person across from you everybody gets fed he feeds you you feed him you're concerned about him he's concerned about you both of you get fed in Gehenna everyone thinks of himself and therefore everyone is trying to eat and everyone is trying to bring the food somehow to his own mouth but without that elbow joint there is no way of getting the food to your mouth so nobody gets to eat Ganeiden and Gehenna are identical it's the attitude that's the difference all of the wherewithal all of the material is identical and is all there both in Ganeiden and Gehenna the food is all there the banquet is there you lack the elbow joint if you think about yourself then nobody gets anything if you think about the other if you're focused on the other then everybody gets if you're focused on yourself nobody gets Shisha Miskasin Betalus Echon six can use one talus when they're thinking of each other but six can't use a talus can't share a talus if you're thinking about yourself if you're pulling it to yourself nobody gets covered nobody gets fed if you focus on the other person then everybody gets fed everybody gets covered even when you have to make do with a little that means that they shared so yes there was great impoverishment but there was also the sense of unity and sharing Again, we haven't answered what this has to do with Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loy, because apparently the, the Gemara is saying this is the greatness of the generation of Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loy, where six of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loy did this. And the Gemara says, Omru Allah al Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loy. This is the praise that they said regarding Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loy. Why him? And in general, what does this have to do with the whole generation? It was a generation of Shmad. That should be Isha Yerush Hashem Hitisawa. But the truth is that part of the question I think we've already answered as he now explains Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. We could now understand the contrast that Chazal are trying to highlight with these three generations. The door of Moshe and Yeshua and the door of Chizkiah and the door of Rebbe Because it's trying to contrast and highlight and compare these three generations as being three generations not merely of Torah study but of the acceptance of Kabbalah's HaTorah that all of these generations had something in common with the original generation of Moshe which was a generation of Kabbalah's HaTorah receiving the Torah Moshe 
just like Dorushal Moshe Zochul Kabbalah Satara, just like the generation of Moshe was the generation of Kabbalah Satara, just like the generation of Chizkia, where as Rashi explained to us, there was not one child who wasn't a Boki in Hilchas Tumah Vitaro, there was a kind of a revitalization of Torah study. There was a reacceptance of the Torah. There was a renaissance of Torah study and therefore it was a generation actually of Torah acceptance. It was a new rebirth, a new reinvigoration in the study of Torah and it was a generation that reaccepted the Torah. It was a kind of a Kabbalah Satorah. They were all bucking Hilchas Tumah Vitaro. In other words, the entire Jewish people studied the Torah, engrossed themselves in Torah study, and became expert in Torah study. That's Mamish, Varizu Kabbalah's Torah Mamish. That's a generation of Kabbalah's Torah. Likewise, the generation of Rabbi Yudu Bar Rabbi Eloi that studied Torah in Mesirus Nefesh, Nefesh, was considered a generation of Kabbalah's Torah. First, let's understand this concept. The truth is it makes a great deal of sense. Because we are living today 2,000 years after the generation of Rabbi Yudah Bar Rabbi Loi. And we still have the Torah, and we're still Isaac B'Torah, we still learn Torah, and we're using all of our tools and utensils and modern technology to further Torah study. And the Jewish people, after suffering what they did for 2,000 years, still maintains the Torah. In what merit is this? In whose Kabbalah Satorah is this a merit of? Is it the original Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe's generation? To a certain extent it is. But Chazal are highlighting Sheker HaChain. That might have only been a thin veneer of Kabbalah Satorah which wouldn't have really lasted to the extent it wouldn't have been entrenched and made permanent to that degree. After all, the generation of Moshe did witness miracles. They received the Torah under those kind of conditions and they had great leaders and they learned Torah in the Anane Yaakov, 38 years in the desert under Anane Yaakov, they were studying Torah, 39 years. The generation of Yoshua also witnessed miracles. They conquered the land, they were given the sovereignty, they were given their own land, and they studied Torah. And yes, the generation of Chizkiah was faced with certain challenges, but they nevertheless had Chizkiah, the great king leader, as, as their um, God Hador and their king, they witnessed the miracles, the, they witnessed the, the obliteration of Sancherev's army, they revitalized Torah study. But the truth is, during that entire period, from the time of Moshe to the time of Rabbi Yudah Bar Rabbi Eloi, some 11, 1200 years, all that period of time, the Jews lived in Eretz Yisrael, a small piece of land, a small part of the world. They lived in Mo, under the conditions of either autonomy or full sovereignty. They lived in their own land, they had their own country, they had their own government, they had a base amigdash through most of the period of time, a mishkan or a base amigdash. And there was only one brief period of exile of 70 years and they returned to the land. So it comes out that during that 11-1200 year period, they lived with independence under their own sovereignty and autonomy, with a mishkan, with a base amigdash, with miracles, with great leaders, with prophecy. But is that going to vouchsafe and guarantee the ability of the Jewish people to maintain Torah for another 2,000 years, cast out from their land, exiled, flung to the four corners of the earth, faced with all kinds of hardships and expulsions and exile and wandering, 
and with all of the challenges of the entire world's culture and civilization and persecution arrayed against it, that the Jews should be able to maintain Torah through all of that, is that a guarantee from the acceptance of the Torah of the generation of Moshe or Yoshua? Or is the firmness of that acceptance more illustrated and demonstrated by the ability of the Jews in the generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi to learn Torah? The acceptance of the Torah of the generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi is what's maintaining Torah to this day. That's the guarantee to our Torah. What vouchsafes the future Torah of the Jewish people is the generation of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi. That Kabbalah Satorah is what's with us today. The Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe and Chizkiah is not with us today. We don't have the miracles and we don't have that kind of an environment. They had an environment that was rich and perfect for Torah study to nourish Torah study. But what's the guarantee that Torah could be grown and flourish in a hostile environment? People never believed that Torah could, be, could take root in America and the Torah study could be nourished and flourish in an environment as hostile to Torah as the United States of America. Yet, we are successfully growing and we are successfully nurturing Torah study in this land, in, in, in America, in the 20th century. How is that possible? Is that the Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe's generation? It looked good. The Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe's generation looked wonderful. There was so much Torah, there was so much greatness over there. Chazal are saying, yes, it looked good, chen, but sheker hachen. There's a certain false veneer to all of that because we don't know if it's true, if it's internalized. Maybe it's only superficial. Maybe it's only on the surface. Maybe it's not internalized. Maybe it's not something which will, which will grow on its own in a hostile environment. It's a thin veneer, sheker hachen. Yes, the the reacceptance and the revitalization and the renaissance of Torah study in Chizkiyot's generation was beautiful. But there's a certain hevel to it. There's a certain, again, beauty being skin deep, a surface, veneer. Is it real? Is it something that can flourish in a hostile environment? If in that generation, if in the generation of Shmad, they could study Torah with such great mysterious nefesh self-sacrifice. If in that generation they could successfully nurture Torah in such an environment, then that's what's going to be with us in Golis. That kind of a Kabbalah Torah we could take with us to all the four corners of the earth, to the far-flung, distant areas of the earth. That's the Kabbalah Torah that will be maintained 2,000 years later when Jews are scattered through the far-flung corners of the earth. It's the Kabbalah Torah of the that's praiseworthy because that's Yiras Hashem that's a true Kabbalah Satorah that's a Kabbalah Satorah with the true Yiras Shemaim of the self-sacrifice that we could say that's the guarantee of Torah that'll vouchsafe the eternity of Torah so in a sense it makes a great deal of sense to say that the generation the Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe and Yeshua and Chizkiah is still lacking. It looks good, but is it merely superficial? How could we tell? Sheker hachein, hevel ayofi. Isho yiras Hashem, heat is hollow. But the truth is, based on the Vilna Goyen's pshat, Vilna Goyen says initially, Sheker hachein, hevel ayofi, isho yiras Hashem, heat is hollow. What does it mean, heat is hollow? It goes back on the chain and the yofi. We find throughout the Torah 
that the Imals were praised for their beauty. We find in many areas of the Torah, whether it's Esther, Avigail, or all of these women, the great Jewish heroines, they're praised for their, for their beauty. Ask the Vilna Gaon, why would they be praised for beauty if we say Sheker Achein Vehevel Ayofi? Why praise them for it? Explains the Vilna Gaon, Isha Yiras Hashem. If there is Yiras Shemaim, then already you could praise them for the beauty as well. Sheker Achein when it's only Chein. Hevel Ayofi when it's only Yofi. Then it's a thin veneer, it's superficial, it's Sheker, it's Hevel. One shouldn't praise it. However, if there's an internal Yiras Hashem, then everything is perfect. Then the entire person is beautiful. If there's external and internal beauty, then the person is praiseworthy for everything. Once there's the internal beauty of Isha Yiras Hashem, then you could praise the external beauty of the of the of the Yofi and the Chain as well. If we if we take that and borrow that idea over here as well, we could say the same thing. If we would only have the generation of Moshe and the generation of Chizkiah, then it will be Sheker Achein and Hevel Ayofi, because there's no guarantee that there is really truly an internalized beauty. There's no proof that Torah is vouchsafed. There is no guarantee from this alone of the eternity of the Torah. But once we see a generation of Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loi, where even under such dire conditions they learn Torah, then not only does this justify his generation and vindicate it, but it vindicates the previous generations as well. Then it shows us that Moshe's Kabbalah Sator and Chizkiyot's Kabbalah Sator were of a true nature and of an eternal nature. Isha Yiras Hashem, he Tishawol, is the generation of Rabbi Yudubar Rabbi Loi that vindicates Moshe and Chizkiyot's generation. Because this shows us that it wasn't beauty alone, it wasn't only skin deep, it wasn't superficial, it wasn't a Kabbalah Sator that was a thin veneer, but rather it was a true Kabbalah Sator, proof being that the generation of Rabbi Yudubar Rabbi Loi maintains it and we maintain it to this day. So therefore that not only vouchsafes the eternity of the Torah, but it vindicates the previous generations and it allows us to give credit and praise to the beauty that was Chizkiyot and to the Chain that was Moshe's. Isha Yiras Hashem Hitishalol is the generation of Rabbi Yudubar Rabbi Loi that justifies and vindicates the previous generations as well as being deemed praiseworthy as showing that the Kabbalah Torah then was indeed real and eternal and vouchsafes for all time. But it comes out that Rabbi Yudubar Rabbi Loi's generation was the final act of Kabbalah Torah that guarantees the eternity of the Jewish people. And therefore to this day we're living off of that kind of a Kabbalah Torah. But what's this business of Shishu Talmidim Eskasin Betalos Achas? Why is this being highlighted as dealing with the Kabbalah Satara? Explains Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. One of the prerequisites for Kabbalah Satara we know was the harmony and the shalom amongst the Jewish people. The Mishnah Mesechnes Der Heretz explains on the Pasuk, Vayichan Yisrael Neged Hohor throughout the Jewish um, travels in the Midbar it always refers to the Jews as traveling Vayisu Vayachanu. Vayisu Vayachnu, they traveled and they settled, Vayachnu, always in plural. The one exception that we find is when they came to Har Sinai, when they encamped there, it doesn't say Vayachanu, it doesn't say they encamped by Har Sinai, but Vayichan, and he encamped, singular. And Klal Yisrael encamped in a singular. Vayichan Yisrael, Neged Hor, comments Chazal, Rashi brings down, Ki'ishachot B'Levechot, they were united like one person with one heart, one devotion. They were like a singular, unique, one individual person. Not Vayachanu, they encamped plural, but Vayichan, he encamped, singular, because 
their encampment was like one person with one heart united together. Says Hashem, so says the Mishnah in the Sechnas Deir Chert, Hashem says, now that I finally got the Jews together, and this is very difficult, because the Jews are never together, they're always a fractious people, they're always argumentative, and they're always quarreling amongst themselves, they're always only a Vayachanu, I finally got them together to be Vayichan, I better give the Torah now. Now is the time to give the Torah. Hashem owes Lamoitein, Hashem Yivorech, Hashem Vashalom, as the last Mishnah says in Shas, it's only Shalom that becomes the Kali, the, the vessel fitting by which Hashem could give the Torah. Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people only when they were united together as one. In other words, as Rukhaim Shmuel we see clearly from here, and this is based on the Orachaim HaKadosh as well, the Orachaim in Parshas Yisrael says, what? That one of the three prerequisites for Kabbalah's Torah for the Jews to receive the Torah is that there has to be the sense of Achtus There has to be shalom, there has to be peace and harmony amongst themselves. Only then could they receive the Torah. So a prerequisite for Kabbalah's Torah is unity and harmony amongst the Jewish people. So says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. The generation of Moshe received the Torah and was meritorious and worthy of receiving the Torah, as we said, because there was this unity amongst them. As it says, Likewise, the generation of Chizkiah, their Makabal, the oil Torah, as the Gemara and Sanhedrin says, that's the generation of Chizkiah. But nevertheless, they surpassed all of them. Because their unity, their love, and their sense of togetherness and harmony and the peace and the shalom that reigned between them in this generation, they surpassed the generation of Moshe in their achdus. They surpassed the generation of Moshe in their unity and in their harmony that reigned and dwelt amongst them. That's their godless. Their godless wasn't necessarily a godless of learning more Torah. The more Torah, that's Shekhar Chein Vehevelayofi. It's the Kabbalah's HaTorah that they had. And the Kabbalah's HaTorah was on two fronts. Firstly, that they were willing to learn Torah under such dire conditions. Their mysterious, their mysterious nefesh, their self-sacrifice for Kabbalah's HaTorah was, was something special was something which surpassed previous generations. But also their achdus surpassed previous generations. And that's a necessary prerequisite for Kabbal Sator, as the Gemara, as the Mishnah says in the Sechlis Deir and Chazal tell us by Vayicha Yisrael, Ki'ish Echod Belev Echod. To have Kabbal Sator, you have to be the Ish Echod Belev Echod. You have to be together, you have to be as one. And that, they surpassed previous generations. That's why it says that they were able to, not only did they live in poverty, of where they needed one garment for six, but they successfully covered themselves one garment for six. So in that, they surpassed the generation of Moshe and Chizkiah. That Mida of six with one talus, shows and demonstrates this virtue of ish echod belev echod to an unprecedented degree 
that was not surpassed by any of the previous generations. Therefore, the Kabbalah Satayr that they had was on a much higher level, and that's what's with us today as well, their Torah. So from Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loy and his Talmidim, we learn these twin values of mysterious Nefesh for Torah, of mysterious Nefesh for Kabbalah Satayr, and of brotherhood and unity and harmony amongst Ben Adam L'Chaver, amongst man and his fellow man. These two values, the serious nefesh and kovod ben Adam l'chavero, are the twin values of Kabbalah's Hatara. But who is Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi, and why is this being attributed to Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi as opposed to the Talmud? And that question we haven't yet answered.